pastors, Jews in the Golan Heights, James Bonds, a lot about Jerusalem and how the Jews eventually get saved. You know what all those things have in common? We're going to talk about them tonight. Let's get our Bibles out and let's turn to Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. Anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Anybody? Pastors, Jews in the Golan Heights, James Bonds, destruction. Lord, we're so grateful of these glimpses into the future. Lord, you have not left us to grope around today with no direction. You've shown us the end from the beginning. And Lord, we're confident that in the end, uh, Jesus will reign. The Jews will be saved. Lord, this all will end in the culmination of your purposes and plans. And in that, Lord, we take great consolation in our lives today. Father, I pray that you would give us comfort, you give us peace, you give us encouragement tonight as we work our way through these chapters. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1929, the Labor Party in Great Britain won the elections, which put Winston Churchill out of government. It was a bitter defeat for Churchill. The British people proved that they liked the pacifist policies of Neville Chamberlain over Churchill's alarmist rhetoric. You see, Churchill saw the rising threat in Germany. He saw the Nazi evil on the horizon, and he warned his British countrymen of impending war. And yet the British preferred to keep their head in the sand. They pretended it all was well. The gullible Chamberlain tried to negotiate with Hitler and believed his promises of peace. But when the German army invaded Poland in 1939, the British people finally realized that Chamberlain had miscalculated Hitler. The man was a monster, and he had to be stopped. And in their moment of crisis, guess where they turned for help? They reelected the man that they had rejected. They pleaded for Churchill to return. And in a very real sense, Winston Churchill saved Great Britain. Now, in tonight's chapters, we have a very similar story. Israel rejects a leader because the truth he speaks is not what they want to hear. He warns them of impending danger while they're content to keep their heads in the sand. They don't like to hear the threats of war. Assurances of peace and safety are what tickles their ears. It's not until the leader they trusted turns out to be a monster, another Hitler, not a Christ or a Messiah, but an Antichrist, that's when they own up to the truth. And in the greatest crisis of the Jews' tumultuous history, these Jews turned to the leader that they had rejected the first time, Jesus the Christ, and in the end, Jesus becomes their Savior. That's what we'll study tonight. Tonight we find in two back-to-back chapters, chapters 11 and 12, both the high point and the low point of Israel's history. The prophet Zechariah foresees two days. The first, April the 10th, 32 AD. This was the day the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But the second day 
is yet future. When the Jews will finally turn to Jesus and embrace their long-rejected king and deliverer. Tonight we'll look at these bookends of Jewish history, the past rejection of Jesus and Israel's ultimate acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah. But first, chapter 10 deals with another matter. God is angry with Israel's negligent shepherds. Verse 1, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, or in other words, in the springtime. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Zechariah is saying, the Lord brings rain in answer to our prayers. Rain is not the result of sorcerers and idols. He says, therefore, the people win their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. Like a sheep without a shepherd, Israel had gone astray. Here in chapter 10, Zechariah blasts Israel's shepherds or her leaders, both the priests and the princes, for failing to lead the people in a righteous way. And this is a timely passage for us, for we suffer the same problem today, do we not? Many of our spiritual shepherds, pastors, and church leaders have failed to take to heart their responsibilities and remain faithful to their calling. You recall back in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, there God promised his people, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. As a shepherd of God's flock, I'm very cognizant of my top priority. It's to feed God's people with God's word. This is the primary calling of a pastor or a shepherd. Zechariah says it's because the shepherds have failed to feed the flock of God that the people, like dumb sheep, have run after idols. And the same problem causes Christians today to run off the rails. Folks get caught up in wrong doctrine and in false gospels because they haven't been sensitized to the truth and error through the teaching of God's Word. Biblical illiteracy runs rampant today. Too few, too few Christians live out the truth because they've lost sight of what is the truth. Right and wrong, Christian and pagan, the spirit and the flesh, even God and Satan have become blurred in people's minds. Sheep today need to cut their teeth on the Word of God. Verse 3 tells us, My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. Once a Christian couple, they were on their way to their wedding when they were in a serious automobile accident. They died. They both died. When the couple got to heaven, they asked St. Peter if they could go ahead and get married in heaven. Peter said, well, sure, that'll be no problem, but we've got a few technicalities we need to clear up first. It shouldn't take us very long. So if you'll just give us 500 years and then check back with us at the end of 500 years. Well, the couple heard that time flies when you're in heaven. And so they agreed. But at the end of the 500 years, they returned to Peter. They said, hey, we're ready to get married. Peter says, oh, I'm so sorry, but we've had a problem. You're going to have to give us another 200 years. Come back in another 200 years. Well, at the end of the 200 years, Peter asked for another 100 years. At the end of the 100 years, Peter asked for another 50 years. 
Well, at last, the patient couple had run out of patience. They complained. They said, Peter, for heaven's sakes, why can't we marry? And embarrassed, Peter told them, he said, look, it's not my fault. How would I have known that we wouldn't have a pastor up here by now? Hey, this was the case in the prophet Zechariah's day. Apparently, sincere men of God were in short supply. God wanted his shepherds to lead his people into battle. He wanted his pastors to be like royal steeds, he says, like horses ready for the battle. Instead, they were acting like jackasses. Verse 4. From him, from the Lord of hosts, comes the cornerstone. From God comes a true pastor, the real shepherd, the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler together. Zechariah mentions several messianic titles. God's coming Savior will be the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow. You remember Psalm 118 verse 22 speaks of the Messiah. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the passage quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone on which God's kingdom gets built. But Messiah is also the tent peg. He's the anchor that holds us down in the storms of life. Jesus steadies us. Jesus is the battle bow. He's the lethal weapon our enemies dread. He is the one who wins the victories for us. Jesus is the cornerstone the foundation on which we build. He's the tent peg, the anchor to which we hold. And he is the battle bow, the weapon that we use to fight. And this picture of the Messiah is a model for every minister. A shepherd or a pastor should provide his people a foundation on which to build their lives, the teaching of the word, an anchor in their storms and weapons to fight their battles. This is our job from week to week to provide you a cornerstone, a tent peg, and a battle bow. And then verse 5, they shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. The Jews who had spent 70 years in Babylonian exile, they were defeated people. But Zechariah here predicts that these Jews who return to the land will come back as mighty men. They'll be men willing to fight. They'll be men willing to tread down their enemies. And this came true. We read in the Old Testament how Nehemiah was a courageous leader. He was willing to pick up a sword in one hand and resort to violence, in fact, when necessary, in order to rebuild the walls. He was followed in history by the Maccabeans, by Judas the Hammer and the Maccabean priests. We talked about them last week. God's people return a different breed than when they left. A defeated people will become valiant warriors. He says, those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. Zechariah makes particular note of the men of Ephraim. They were an emboldened group, a spunky group, as if their spirits had been lifted by a little wine. More likely, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And we're told their children took note. Isn't that interesting? Hey, you know when kids see their parents filled with the Holy Spirit on fire for the Lord, it makes a powerful impression. A cardinal once warned Henry VIII, Be well advised and assured what you put in his head, for ye shall never pull it out again. And the same is true in regards to our children. The words we say, the example we set, what we put in their heads is powerful. Once you've put it in their head, you can never pull it out again. Here, these bold leaders, these fiery leaders, inspire their kids to follow. It's been said, children will forgive their parents for many things, but cowardice sends them elsewhere for strength. Kids are attracted to bold leadership. They rejoice in the Lord when they see bravery in their parents. And then verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. I love that. You, you, you probably go outside, you whistle for your dog, and your dog comes running up to the front of the house and all. God is going to whistle for the Jews. Like his pet dog. He's going to whistle for the Jews, and they're all going to come running. They're going to come back to Israel. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. This took place in the late 6th century B.C. when the Jews returned from Babylon, but this is also occurring by droves in our own day. Here's why our airfare to Israel is always so expensive. The demand is high. Jews are flocking home. Though they spent 2,000 years in foreign lands, they're now returning to their ancient homeland of Israel, of Judah and Samaria. After the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Jews were dispersed among the nations. And yet something occurred that's unprecedented in the history of the world. Rather than be assimilated into the surrounding cultures, the Jews maintained their identity and their religion and their heritage. They remained a distinct people. And now, after 2,000 years in exile, they're again returning home. It's nothing short of a modern miracle and a fulfillment of the Scriptures. And then he says, I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. Today, Gilead is the Golan Heights. This is the disputed territory northeast of the Dead Sea. This is the area that Israel gained control of in its recent wars with its, with its Arab neighbors. The UN and the Palestinians want Israel to evacuate the Golan. Here, God predicts that he's going to fill Gilead with Jews so that there's going to be no more room. They're going to be so packed. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. The pride of Assyria was the Euphrates, the scepter of Egypt, the Nile. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. In the regathering of the Jews that's still future, God will dry up the rivers, the Nile, and the Euphrates to help his people return home. Chapter 11 begins. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan. 
for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. In these verses, Zechariah uses three metaphors for princes or for rulers. First are trees. Cedars and oaks stand above the forest like a leader above his people. Second, shepherds, they lead the flock. And then third, roaring lions, who obviously are the kings of the jungle. Now remember our context. In chapter 9, Zechariah predicted a coming ruler. Remember what he said? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. This was a fabulous prophecy. It looked to a specific day, 530 years future, when Jesus did ride his donkey down the Mount of Olives to the cheers of the crowd, presented himself to the nation as their Messiah. In chapter 10, the true shepherd of Israel was contrasted with the negligent shepherds who led the flock astray. Now, in chapter 11, we're going to see how the false shepherds spurned the true shepherd, Jesus Christ, and oversee his execution. Chapter 11 describes the Jews' rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and the judgment that fell as a result. Little did that crowd realize that day the awful chain of events they unleashed on 2,000 years of Jewry when they uttered those words, His blood be on us and on our children. For starters... Just 38 years later, the Romans sacked Jerusalem. They killed over a million Jews. They drove the Jews out of Jerusalem. And for the last 19 centuries, they've lived dispersed among the nations of the earth. The destruction of Jerusalem actually began in 66 AD when the Jews revolted against the Roman occupation. Rome responded by dispatching General Vespasian and his legions to put down the uprising. The Romans systematically conquered Jewish strongholds in Lebanon and then in Galilee and then in Bashan as they marched south toward Jerusalem. During the campaign, one of the Jewish generals defected to the Romans. This traitor, a Jewish Benedict Arnold, anybody know his name? Flavius Josephus. He became the famous historian who wrote of the destruction of Jerusalem in his classic work, The War of the Jews. Two years later, after Vespasian launched his campaign in Israel, Nero, the emperor in Rome, died. Vespasian was called back to Rome to take the throne. That left his son Titus to lead the troops and to march on Jerusalem. The walls were breached in the summer of 70 AD. The Romans destroyed the city. They slaughtered the Jews. They burned the temple. Thousands of Jews were crucified and many more were sold into slavery. It was a tragic end to an era that had begun with such promise. See, Zechariah here is recounting the history in advance. And then he says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord my God, Feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. The owners of the flock here are probably the Romans who maintained political control of Israel from 60 B.C. through 330 A.D. You remember in John chapter 19, verse 15, when Pilate asked the Jews, 
Shall I crucify your king? You remember how the priest responded? We have no king but Caesar. They admitted that Caesar was their king, that they were, uh, that Caesar was their owner. Here God honors their future choice and calls Rome their owners. And Rome was not a merciful benefactor. Rome was barbaric. The Romans were pitiless and bloodthirsty. The Romans crucified millions of their subjects all over the world. And those they didn't slaughter, they sold as slaves. Now notice the shepherds here in verse 4 are the Jewish leaders, particularly the spiritual leaders, the priests and the rabbis. And yet God says that they were worse than the Romans. How could that be? Well, here's how. All this was going on, and they didn't care. We're told they had no pity on the people. You see, this was the problem with the Jewish hierarchy in the days of Jesus. As long as they profited financially from the Roman occupation, they were willing to look the other way at all of the corruption. Reminds me of the Jew who drove his Mercedes to the synagogue. He wanted to find a rabbi to bless his new car. Well, the Orthodox rabbi, he, he said, wait a minute, what's a Mercedes? It's Orthodox. The conservative rabbi said, I'm not sure I can bless a car. While the reform rabbi said, what's a blessing? Today, there are Jewish rabbis, and I hate to say it, but there are also some Christian pastors who've lost touch with the spiritual and the biblical and the eternal that would ask the same question, what's a blessing? Though they call themselves pastors, their prime objective is not to make waves, to respect the status quo to keep the church on solid financial ground. Like the shepherds of old, they have no pity for the people. He says, For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. For indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. Like fattening a turkey on Thanksgiving Day. God let, his sin, let the people's sins add up so that the justice of his punishment would be without question. And then Zechariah says, I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. Now here the prophet, like so many others before him, is commanded to act out a spiritual skit, a living parable. You remember Isaiah was told to walk naked for three years. Ezekiel laid on his side, burned a scarf, dug a hole in the wall of his house, all to portray messages and prophecies to the people. Hosea married a prostitute. The list goes on and on. Well, here Zechariah is told to dress like a shepherd, to feed his sheep, and to take two staffs with him. One he calls beauty, and the other he calls bonds. If God called me to do the same thing, and I had to name my two staffs, I'd call them James and Anna. My staffs, get it? James and Anna. Anna would be the beauty, and James would be bonds. James, bonds? James. I had a lot of fun working on that this afternoon. <laughs> In the Hebrew text, beauty means grace or favor, 
Bonds means unity. And thus, Zechariah, a good shepherd, was called to preach grace and unity, which is still the message of a good shepherd or pastor. Notice verse 8. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Well, God hated, God loathed these three shepherds. Who were they? Bible commentator Walter Kaiser writes, over 40 possibilities have been suggested for these three shepherds in verse 8, covering a range of persons from the earliest days of Israel's history to Roman times. Lots and lots of ideas have been postulated here. And yet I believe the oldest interpretation is probably the best. These three shepherds probably represent the three offices in Israel, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And here we're told God will fire them all in a month. This is amazing, really. When Jerusalem fell to Rome and the temple was destroyed, the Levitical priesthood was disbanded, the prophets hid in shame, and the Jewish princes were slaughtered. In one month, institutions that had lasted thousands of years, that had been part of the Jewish landscape since Moses, suddenly no longer existed. History tells us on July 17, 70 A.D., the daily sacrifices in the temple ceased for lack of a man strong enough to offer them. There were no more active priests. Princes and prophets were also gone within the month, just as Zechariah had predicted. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. The judgment was a foregone conclusion. Zechariah chose to hasten it along rather than to delay it. You know, when the Romans laid siege to a city, they were very, very patient. They knew that time was on their side. History tells us that they would surround and besiege a city for decades if need be. The idea was to cut off supply lines entering into the city and literally starve the people into surrender or into death. Josephus reported that the situation in Jerusalem was so desperate, the people had resorted to cannibalism. Verse 10, And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. What an ominous thing to do, to take beauty and cut it in two, to cut the covenant in two. Now understand, this was not the covenant that God had made with the Jews. He's not cutting that covenant in two. He keeps that covenant. But this is the covenant that he made to the Gentiles that he, that he breaks. You remember what God said to Abraham concerning the Gentiles? He says, I will bless those who bless Israel. And I will curse those who curse Israel. That's the covenant he made with the Gentiles. And yet here God suspends that covenant, for he gives permission to the Romans to harm his own people Israel without fear of reprisal here. Rome is going to get a free pass for judging Jerusalem. Rome has become God's instrument of judgment. Verse 11, so it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. History tells us it was on Tisha B'Av, or Av the ninth, August the 6th, 70 A.D., the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. Rome inflicted God's judgment on Israel's shepherds. 
It's an interesting footnote that in the final months of the siege, the Roman general Titus, he pulled his troops back from the walls for three or four days. From a military perspective, this was inexplicable. But as it turns out, there were Christians inside the city of Jerusalem who had recalled the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse when he said, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Thus, Titus's mini-retreat gave these believers an opportunity to obey and to survive, and they were able to slip free during those three days. Even in the storm, God protected his persecuted church, or as mentioned here, the poor of the flock. In essence, Zechariah has been the only true shepherd in Israel. He's been faithful to God. And so in verse 12, he asks for his wages. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And this was an insult to the prophet Zechariah. For according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. The people obviously didn't recognize the value of a good spiritual shepherd. Remember, these were the people that were allowing the false shepherds to get rich. But when it came time to pay a sincere shepherd who fed them the truth of God's word, they mocked him by giving him the salary that they would give a slave. The moral of the story is don't expect the world to value your faithfulness to God. This world is more likely to pay you with rejection than with a reward. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. You should read these words with sarcasm. 30 pieces of silver was not a princely price. They were an insult. They were the price of a slave. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. 30 pieces of silver were not worth keeping. Just throw them. If that's all you think I'm worth, just throw them on the temple floor. (coughs) They became spare change for the potters. Now remember, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said these words. Indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, the first martyr, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, recheck Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. You'll see that this Zechariah's father was named Berechiah. Thus, it seems likely that the author of this book was the prophet murdered in the outer court between the altar and the temple that he helped to rebuild. Check that out. Zechariah was murdered in the temple he helped to rebuild. Jewish tradition has it that the prophet Zechariah was one of the founding members of the great synagogue of which Ezra was the first president. This was the Jewish governing council, a forerunner of what would later become called the Sanhedrin. (coughs) Yet even though Zechariah was a member, it didn't mean that he agreed with all its decisions. Ultimately, Zechariah's stand for God's truth would cost him his life. 
It may have been this announcement of judgment. It may have been when he broke his staffs, beauty and bronze, that this caused the tide to turn against Zechariah. It's also interesting that in these verses, Matthew sees a prophecy fulfilled by Judas when he betrayed Jesus. You remember Judas was paid how much? 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave to do the dirty deed. All they considered Jesus to be worth was the price of a slave. But when the deed was done, Benedict Judas was so gripped by guilt, his own guilty conscience, that he tried to return the money. And when the priest wouldn't accept it, you remember Judas threw it down on the floor of the temple. And he went out and hung himself. Later, the coins were purchased to buy a potter's field that was used to bury the indigent. All this is an interesting example of how some Old Testament prophecies get applied. In Zechariah 11 here, the 30 pieces of silver were paid to a righteous shepherd for his faithful service. In Matthew 27, these 30 pieces of silver go to a crook to buy a traitorous kiss. Understand, it's not the circumstances that make this passage prophetic. It's quoted by Matthew. Here the predictive element is the amount of the money and what it ultimately purchased, the potter's field. It's just a different, it's just a a more oriental or nonlinear method of seeing prophecy than we usually employ. Notice verse 14. Then I cut in two my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. When the Jews rejected Jesus in the gospel, they were sentenced to dispersion. They remained divided among the nations for the next 1,800 years. And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Now remember, Zechariah, he's still acting out this parable. But now he changes roles. He acts the part of a foolish shepherd. You know, it's been said, once a man rejects the truth, there's no end to the foolishness that he'll believe. And this was proved true in the history of Israel. Despite Jesus' messianic credentials, his pedigree, his miracles, a mountain of fulfilled prophecies, even his resurrection, the Jews still rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But guess what? Ever since their rejection of Jesus, they have fallen for every false Messiah since. From Bar Kokhba to the most recent, Menachem Schneerson. And it's their desperation that's led the Jews to hail their Messiah. People that have no objective claim to the title. The Jews have followed charlatans and old men and lunatics even after they had rejected Jesus. I mean, it's almost like they're a desperate old maid whose only qualification for a husband is a pulse now. Jews are desperate for a Messiah. And it's their desperation, it's their gullibility that will lead them to their worst miscalculation of all. For just as Neville Chamberlain mistook Hitler for a sensible man that the British could work with, the Jews are one day going to mistake a last day's Hitler, a monster called the Antichrist as their friend. And in verse 16, the prophet Zechariah foresees this evil Antichrist of the last days. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, 
nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Once the church is raptured, a leader of a revived Roman Empire will sign a treaty with Israel. He'll be seen as a friend of the Jews, a deliverer, a Messiah. And yet under the surface, his hatred for the Jews will simmer. His goal will be to tear the Jews to pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. The Jews who trust in this worthless shepherd, see, they trusted in him to protect them with his arm and to watch over them with his eye. And so what does God do? To show them the folly of their allegiance, he injures the man's arm and blinds his right eye. Remember in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, John is talking about the Antichrist, the beast, when he says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Perhaps this future charismatic leader will suffer a foiled assassination attempt. But with a paralyzed arm and a blinded right eye, the world will see his recovery and they'll hail it a miracle. They'll consider him indestructible. But the Jews alive at the time will remember this prophecy in Zechariah 11. This is what happens not to the true shepherd, but to the worthless shepherd. And it will cause the Jews to think, This will begin to prepare the Jews for one of the greatest reversals in human history. And we read about it in chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Now notice verse 1 is in the present tense. It's not that God stretched out the heavens or that God laid the foundation of the earth, or that God formed the spirit of man in the past. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that he's still involved in doing these things today. The Almighty didn't wind up the creation like a clock and leave it to run out on its own. To the contrary, God is still in his creation. He is still stretching out the heavens. He is still holding all things together. And he even creates the spirit of in the inner person of every human being that is born. This is interesting, especially in light of the Mormon teaching of the preexistence of the human soul. Mormons believe that your spirit existed before you were born, but not so according to Zechariah 12 verse 1. Here the Bible teaches that God forms the spirit of each man within him when he forms the man in the womb. Verse 2 Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. God will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. The nations will get tipsy over Jerusalem. They'll stop thinking straight. Their hatred for Jerusalem defies logic and rational thought. You know, throughout history, Jerusalem has waited for its moment. Few of its conquerors have even bothered to make it its capital. And yet today, Jerusalem is the most holy, 
the most hotly contested piece of real estate on the planet. And its importance will only increase. Jerusalem will move center stage. You need to know, the next world war, it won't be fought over Arab oil. It'll be fought over Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. You'd think the odds of the entire world against one city would be in the world's favor, wouldn't you? That the armies of the world would be more than enough to vanquish one city. But not so with Jerusalem. This city is a heavy stone. God will make it a millstone around the neck of the earth. And in the last days, the united armies of the world will rally to overthrow Jerusalem and yet fail For God will defend the holy city. Jesus will return to fight for the Jews in Jerusalem. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. For the past 2,000 years, unbelieving Israel was officially cut off from God's plan. His focus has been on the church. But when the nations war against Jerusalem, God will again come to defend Jerusalem. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. Of course, today, Israel is a secular state. But I believe that soon stands to change. And in the next few verses, Zechariah describes a spiritual awakening that will eventually lead to Israel's salvation. He writes, In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. Notice the language there. Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place in Jerusalem. What does that mean? In other words, the city won't be altered. Nothing gets divided. Nothing gets annexed. Jerusalem remains Jerusalem. And the Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. The house of David was the ruling class. No family in Israel was stronger than the house of David. And yet in this end time that he's discussing, even the feeble will be David strong. They'll be like the angel of the Lord. You remember 2 Kings 19? That angel of the Lord, he was a bad dude. He slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in one night. In the battle of Jerusalem, the Jews will be outnumbered, but God will strengthen the Israelites so that the weakest among them will fight like angels, like David. God will empower his people. And then verse 9, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All the nations that come against Jerusalem, God intends to destroy. 
He'll destroy the nations, but he plans to revive Israel. For he says, For I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. God will pour out his spirit on the Jews. He'll overwhelm the Jews with his grace. They'll realize that his favor was never about their good works. It was a gift. It was all about grace. He'll humble these people. They'll realize that they missed the gift when they rejected Jesus. And they'll cry out for his mercy. And then something beautiful, absolutely beautiful will happen. Something that we've waited on for 2,000 years. Then, as a nation, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Collectively, the Jews will repent and they'll put their faith in the one they have pierced. Once two Jewish men, they got lost in the city and they walked into this Catholic church. They stumbled onto the induction ceremony of a hundred new nuns. Well, they needed to ask for directions, but this service is in progress, and so they decided to wait until it had finished. One of the priests saw the men and thought it was odd for two Jews to be attending the ordination of a hundred nuns. When he approached them, one of the Jews said, Oh, don't worry, we're from the groom's family. And that is true. Jesus was a Jew. They're family. The Jews and Jesus are family. Hey, when church members in Rome started teaching that God was through with the Jews, you remember what the apostle Paul wrote them? He said emphatically, certainly not. Jesus was born of Jewish parents into a Jewish family. He grew up in a Jewish culture. God will forever be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, patriarchs of the Jews. In Romans 11, Paul explains when the Jews rejected Jesus, they were benched for 2,000 years, yet in the last days they're going to be put back in the lineup. Romans 11:26 tells us all Israel will be saved. That means that all the Jews alive in the end will believe on Jesus and will be saved. Prior to Jesus' second coming, national repentance will fall on Israel. See, just as the British were wrong about Churchill, about following Churchill, the Jews will realize they were wrong about following Jesus, that he is their Messiah. What he said was true. They'll believe on him whom they pierced. In the end, every Jew will be a Jew for Jesus. Put it all together, and here's this end-time scenario that the Bible gives us. At first, the Jews embrace the worthless shepherd, the Antichrist. They think he's Messiah. But he turns out to be a monster. He attacks Jerusalem and the Jews. He desecrates the temple. The Jews flee flee to the wilderness, to Basra, where they hide from him there in the rock fortress of Petra. This is when Jesus returns to fight for Jerusalem. He destroys the armies of the earth and the valley by the Temple Mount, the Kidron Valley. He delivers the Jews from Basra, and establishes a kingdom that rules this earth for a thousand years. And somewhere, an amazing transformation occurs. Jews who rejected Jesus begin to embrace him as their Savior. What a glorious day that'll be. 
Perhaps it's their up-close dealings with the Antichrist that make them reconsider Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the special witnesses, the 144,000, the angels that fly through the sky, that are all mentioned in Revelation. Perhaps it's the sign of the Son of Man that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24. But whatever it is, it opens their eyes. The Holy Spirit gets poured out upon them and takes them to the cross. He takes them to the cross because here God tells the prophet, they will look on me whom they have pierced. It's the cross that convinces them in the end. It's the preaching of the cross. You know, without the New Testament, without the Gospels, Zechariah's prophecy wouldn't make sense to us. God is spirit. How does spirit pierce or wound? Piercing requires flesh. And this is what the Jews missed, isn't it? God became a man and took on human flesh. That by his stripes we are healed. The Jews were blind to God's incarnation. Today, sadly, Jewish scholars, they twist Zechariah 12 verse 10. They say it refers to the Gentile nations mourning over the Jews that they've persecuted. But there were earlier Jewish rabbis who admitted the obvious that this passage speaks of the Messiah. One day this verse will come true. All Israel, alive at the time, will look on Jesus and will trust in his wounds. Well, Verse 11, in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. This refers to the national mourning that occurred when King Josiah, the beloved King Josiah, died in battle. A similar weeping will occur when the Jews admit what they did to Jesus and realize their enormous mistake. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by itself. This is sort of a graphic, sort of a Jewish way of saying the whole nation will weep and mourn. In the end, the Jews will mourn. They will grieve over what they did to Jesus. They will. Zechariah says so. This is an amazing chapter to me. God loves Israel. He is not through with the Jews. You know, we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but there'll be no peace without Jesus. Remember, in the end, every Jew will be a Jew for Jesus. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. 